Welcome to Discography, the music podcast that delivers the objective truth about the entire discography of every single artist and band that ever existed. Joe, I am so psyched right now. My butt's a buzz. <laughs> that's very. That's, that sounds exciting. It, it's actually uh, less pleasant when I verbalize it, but uh, I have this book that my wife got for me, um, and she did a really, really good job picking it out because... Uh, this book, it's called Feel the Music, uh, The Psychedelic Worlds of Paul Major. This is a guy who um, has a band called Endless Boogie, and he's a, uh, a vinyl dealer. Uh, rare records, a lot of self, uh, self-released self private press psychedelic stuff. Right. And yeah, private press, meaning you know, the artist is putting it out themselves. Right. So, um, you know, and we typically t- what comes with that is a very singular point of view. About yeah, we world. were talking about this earlier, kind of the... the uh, one of the things that happens on those records that there's no producer saying no to anything. Um, so you get this kind of uh, unvarnished um, look into somebody's with you know some, their own take on music. So without yeah. without the edges sanded off. Um, so um, I imagine that's a lot of what's in the book. You play you're playing some, some stuff from earlier. Nuts. I mean, yeah. I'm listening. I'm actually waking up super early because I mm. you know I have to go to work. But uh, I'm waking up at like two three in the morning with mm. insomnia and then burrowing in the middle of the night into these very strange people's mentalities yeah we were listening to some of these you're playing some of these for me on the way over and that that's kind of the quality that really jumps out at me that, and that's yeah. in a lot of this sort of like regional i music. played you the good stuff but then there's the really weird stuff there's mm-hmm. this one guy who makes the most insane racket ever and this is coming from a guy who knows the gods who, mm-hmm. who would love a vinyl copy of vinyl machine music this guy makes a racket mm-hmm. and he sings about how the bums down on the street are making way too much noise and he's going to call the cops <laughs> which is so ridiculous it's very very verite approach to nuts. it yeah it's great stuff we definitely promised to have this guy on the pod yeah, we um, want to get him as a guest. Uh, yeah, we, we have to. He's just, he's incredible. The book's amazing. Again, it's called Feel the Music. And uh, Jen, you did a great job picking this out for me. I can't uh, get enough of this stuff. Mm-hmm. But, uh, okay, back to business. This is, I'm, I'm also, my butt's also a buzz because we have uh, an incredible uh, That's show probably the main tonight. reason for the buzz- buzzing. Exactly. Oh, wait, no, it's a joy buzzer that I accidentally <laughs> left in my underwear. Um <laughs> All right, so first things first, you need to know just how seriously we take this shit. Discography is heavily researched, and the music is always reassessed with fresh ears. Well, that's because we're, we're not covering just albums. We do everything, EPs, singles, comp tracks, solo work, bootlegs, you know, whatever it is, we're, we're reviewing it. Every release is slapped with an objectively accurate star rating between zero and five. And then we are able to come face to face with you, loyal listener, to the true shape of an artist's overall arc. And this episode of Discography will be turning our spray cans on the raincoats. Ragamuffin bandits who live the squatter lifestyle turned... Ragamuffin bandits who live in domiciles for which they pay cash money like the rest of us chumps. That's right. Why should they be any different? Our guest today has been writing for Pitchfork since 2011. Her work has also appeared in the New York Times, the Los Angeles Times, the Guardian, the Wire, and elsewhere. She's the author of The Raincoats, an excellent book, conveniently enough, about the band we're covering today, and currently co-authors the newsletter Cryptophagia. 
She was a full-time Pitchfork staffer for six years as a writer and then editor of reviews before becoming a contributing editor in 2018. Lads and ladies of Discography City, will you please join us in welcoming Jen Pelly. Welcome to the show, Jen. Yay, thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on. So such a great topic today. We were big, big fans of this band, and we were really excited to do this episode. And um, super excited to have you on because you're sort of the definitive authority, really. Um, your book is really super informative, really helped a lot in putting this episode together, for me at least. I'm glad yeah. to hear that. It is currently the only book about the raincoats that exists, so mm-hmm. I feel like I can accept that (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah you definitely are the foremost authority so i mean i know the you know we usually kick off the program with uh you know discussion about what the the artist in question means to us but i know you have like a really personal connection with it so we're going to defer to you on this one if you don't mind yeah sure i'm I'm happy to to talk about that i you know something it's it's funny um Something that I, I mentioned at the end of my book, uh, like the last, I think maybe on the very last page, is that while I was working on it, um, Gina Birch, who is the bassist of the Raincoats, asked me um, like if I would be making the book personal. And I think what she meant by that question is like, would I be talking about like how I got into the band and like my experiences listening to them and um, using I. Um, and I didn't really want to do that writing this book since there had been no book about the Raincoats yet. I, I wanted to make it, I wanted to fill it with information about them and like th- reflect on their music and not talk about myself. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also feel like, um, as is the case when anyone talks about music that is super important to them, like it is personal, like my connection to their music is personal. My perspective on it is personal. Um, but somehow more so with this band. This I think band, there's that kind of artist. I think for people yeah. who relate to them and for people who are going to get into these records, I think it, they're, they, they're a lifestyle band. They really are. Yeah. I mean, and it's they're, they're, I think, you know, Kurt Cobain's quote about feeling like he's eavesdropping on them or something. I think that's really kind of true. I think you, it, you feel kind of like you're in there in the room with them, like you're witnessing it all happening. Yeah, and I, th- I think it's because they are really a band where there is like an ethic and a philosophy to it that is like felt, you know, it's like in the music and you can feel it, even mm-hmm. if you don't have the vocabulary to articulate it or you're not aware of like where they're coming from and like the, you know, types of art they were studying and politics that they were processing while they were making the music, you could still feel that there's something really profound like inside of it, I think. Yeah. And I think that has to do with the way that it is composed and recorded and performed where yeah the process um, the process is very distinctive so that being said let's let's rewind to to because a lot of people listening to this may or may not know about the band we you know they're probably on the more obscure end of things in terms of bands that That we've we've covered so far covered yeah Yeah. we plan on getting Mm -hmm. a heck of a lot more obscure than this but um but anyway, they the the group was formed in 1977 by Anna De Silva and Gina Birch, the guitarist and, and bassist respectively. Also, both songwriters, both vo- vocalists, uh, while they were at art college in London. Their early days. Talk a little bit about the uh, the scene they came out of, that where England was at the time, and you know this is in '77, kind of the height of punk. Yeah, I think it's really interesting how the Raincoats are a band who they definitely came out of the first wave of punk, which I think if you listen to them, you might you might think that they came later on, but they were going to see the Sex Pistols and going to see the Clash and the Slits. Um, most importantly, the Slits because right. 
Splits, the first all-woman band in the London punk, punk scene, were the band that really like galvanized them and made them feel like we can do this, like we're, we can be a part of this, like we can play music even though we don't own instruments or in Gina's case, she didn't own a bass. And before then, um, it didn't even cross their minds they could do it. It, it wasn't even a notion. Yeah, that's what um, Gina Gina said, and um, I think it's you know there's this quote from Viv Albertine that I have Viv Albertine being the guitarist of the Slits that I have um, that I reference in my book where she says you know it's not really a matter of a question of why I started playing but why I didn't play before, and she talks about how the men um, in her scene had like role models they could look to and she didn't but she realized she didn't need a role model she could just pick up an instrument and play and that to me is a really articulate um and powerful idea it's interesting at 77 punk's sort of at a crossroads because it sort of hit a critical mass you know the sex pistols have hit singles on the charts it's you know and it's i think it's that particular year is where it becomes a question of like what does punk really mean and uh, what the raincoats took it to mean was very much not like, okay, I need to wear the clothes that everybody is wearing. I need to look this certain way. I, I think it, a lot of people, it, it, it hit such a critical mass that I think there was sort of a cookie cutter thing that was starting to happen. Where everybody was just imitating mm. the most popular bands. They, they took the message, they, they took the uh, inspiration. No, it's not about that. It's about following your muse, doing your own thing, and staying unique to that and just staying and they had a much more outsider art approach to what punk meant to them totally yeah it just meant expressing yourself and like finding your own voice and i think that um is really what their legacy is which is interesting because um you know with a band like the raincoats i think that sometimes it can be kind of hard to um really clearly chart their influence because i don't think they i'm sure that there's bands who probably want to sound like the raincoats but i think that they're really a band that has inspired so many people over decades to find their own voice and right. find their own having a band and that to me is like so beautiful yeah that to me is what really i i but punk rock is to me is not not conforming you know and it was at a place in 77 where we started to turn into that it was starting well, it to turn into almost a conformist, more so right? than conform yeah. society but yeah. you know a couple there were two points that you brought up in your book that uh, that i really feel uh you know uh, kind of tilt towards what you guys were just talking about um in a way i think they were the ultimate punks because uh talking about lara logic from x-ray specs and Palmolive from the Slits being kicked out of their bands. And this is like a, almost like a punk clearinghouse for bands that had kicked out former members. So right. the, in a way, they're the ultimate punks. They're the, it's the punk rejects, uh, the punkiest of the punks. And also, they never practiced their instruments alone. So how do you imitate a sound that was born organically from these very people playing together. Yeah, that's a good point about the way they rehearsed together and kind of com composed the music through improvising together and really like wove this interesting um, tapestry of sound together when they played. So now we're in phase one, No, no One's Little Girls, 1977 to 1984. There's really not a slew of phases. There's the initial phase and then the comeback, but... Um, so the for the band the band played live their first show was November 9th, nineteen seventy seven, um, and it was not yet an all female band. 
Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's actually, um, it's funny because I think that there's, if you know anything about the raincoats, there's probably like these two things that you know, right? One, they were an all-woman band, but they were actually only an all-woman band for like eight months. Yeah, just a short time, (laughs) right. The second thing you know is that supposedly they didn't know how to play their instruments when they formed the band. But that's also kind of a misconception because Vicky, the violin player, was classically trained and had studied the violin um, extensively. Yeah, and that's one more. Wait, one more misconception. Not all of them squatted. <laughs> oh, what? Anna did what? <laughs> right, Anna lived in a in a. How how nice was her place? <laughs> it was like a palatial <laughs> estate. <laughs> no, 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 it wasn't. <laughs> I also think the thing of them being, you know, there's they're obviously unconventional musicians. But um, they're 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 all pretty amazing musicians. I mean, I I would defy mm-hmm. somebody to try to sit down and learn like like you know get get three of your friends together and try to learn to play one of those songs. It's not easy. <laughs> they, the way they play, you kind of have to be them to play the song the right way. The, the, totally, the, yeah. That was something I remember. I think it was when I interviewed Green Guardside from Scooty Pooty. He was like, I don't know how you would notate these songs, but. Um, but that's part of what even makes beyond them. notating to attempt to even get a similar feel to something like let's say no side to to fall in. I mean, there's <laughs> it would be literally impossible. Yeah, they're sneaky good musicians. I mean, yeah. they, you know, they 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 have a sort of you know uh, kind of rickety quality to them sometimes. You know, but they they all come up with great ideas, great parts. They all like you know, and they they do have you know that this this secret weapon of Vicky, who um you know obviously is a very accomplished musician. Mm-hmm. Right. So mm-hmm. she, she, so actually in 77, they're a whole mess of different people. Late in 1978, they become an all female band uh, when Palmolive comes on and then Vicky comes on, Vicky Aspinall. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. They made their live debut January 4th, 1979. And importantly, I would like to mention uh, Shirley O'Loughlin, um, who was their manager, uh, extremely involved in a creative capacity, not just booking shows. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they all spoke about Shirley as being like a fifth member of the band, and right. like they made decisions as a five-piece unit. Let's talk about that squatting culture, because before we get into the music, it's important to know that uh, that while they're um, you know sitting there uh, playing those instruments, maybe not in the studio, but learning these songs and and uh, fleshing them out, there's mushrooms growing out of the wall. To, to me, learning about um, how the reality of squatting in late 70s London really facilitated their sound in a lot of ways was totally fascinating. Um, The fact that even though um, some of the members of the band were just starting out on their instruments and the um, music could be simple, they were really, um, they had the time and the space to weave together these um, songs that are really like layered and, and multidimensional with and a lot very, going on. They're very lived in the, the songs, exactly. feel, you know, yeah. they, I, it, I kind of mentioned this before. It's like, you kind of have to be them. You have to kind of like live this way to make music, but this process, like there's a telepathy to the way they play, you know, that mm-hmm. they, there's a way that they follow each other and work together and end up doing these things that are pretty complicated. Yep. <laughs> like all the tempo yeah. shifts, they hit them all like really seamlessly and, some songs have like crazy arrangements. Like they, they all kind of, there's a sense when they're playing that it's about to fall apart, but it never falls apart. And they, to me, they never really hit like a wrong note or anything. No. You know? Also, they had a very specific uh, aesthetic. They didn't get, uh, they didn't feel like they needed to uh, hang 
uh, clothespins from all their clothing and, and act like everyone else in the punk scene. They were just wearing their um, uh, the clothes that they had purchased or what potentially stolen from secondhand <laughs> stores. Um, and uh, and they lined up all at the at the lip of the stage, right, with a egalitarian stance, so that nobody was the focal point, really. Yeah, they definitely didn't. Um, like there was no front person; they were all just together performing. Um, especially and yeah, on, they... on the first record, especially later on, they kind mm-hmm. of they would take turns, kind of singing. And about mm-hmm. there's a lot of group mm-hmm. vocals, and yeah. a sense that no instrument is like prominent over another one on this first album. There's a really strong sense of that. Right. Yeah, it's interesting. I like, you know, it's funny because I feel like at this point um, I could hear and see the raincoats in, in so much out in culture. <laughs> but um, I w- when I was watching the um, the Velvet Underground documentary mm-hmm. that came out last year, which is so, so amazing, good. you know, the Velvet Underground being a huge influence on the raincoats. Um, the thing that Jonathan Richmond said about the Velvet Underground having a group sound, I think also really applies to the raincoats. especially yeah. during- You know, it's funny, uh, you, you know, you mentioned Velvet Underground being a big influence. Wasn't it really with, with with regard to Vicky? That was one of the main contributions of Mayo Thompson, who was the, yes. the head of the Red Crayola, is introducing, thank God, in the nick of time, the Velvet Underground mm-hmm. to her, so that the way that she sawed away at her violin became more emphatic. Yeah, yeah, totally. I should say that the Velvet Underground was like a huge influence on Anna and Gina when right, they were performing. Right. Mm-hmm. And yeah, Vicky told me that it took a little bit of convincing for her to really like go with it, but... So we're pretty much up to where they're making the record now at this point. Yeah, yeah. So, um, uh, you know, the first release is the single, uh, May, I think it's May 79, Fairy Tale in the Supermarket. Uh, to what What is, you know, so mind-blowing to me about this um, initial release, even though we can potentially leave the, the actual reviewing to when we get to the record, is uh, all three songs on the single were written by three different members of the group. So um, Anna is fairy tale, Gina is in love, and Palmolive is adventures close to home, which really is a screed for her splitting. Yeah, yeah, that, that um, totally. She's like na- narrating exactly where she is in her life, which is that she is about to go off on this other path. Um, yeah, they each wrote um, the lyrics to those songs individually and obviously wrote the music all together. Um, it's an astounding uh-huh. initial release. And, mm-hmm. you know, we, we can, you know, review the record as if Fairy Tale in the Supermarket was on it, but it actually wasn't. Um, the crazy thing is it makes that makes a perfect opener for the record, mm-hmm. and so does No Side exactly. to Follow. They both could, they both, they're both great openers. They really are. At first, I couldn't understand it at all. And then the more I listened to the record, and I think I listened to this f- uh, five times in a row, the record's got its own internal logic to it. it really, it's incredible. And it came out in November 79, which, uh, you know, along with their disparate influences, is probably the only reason why they're labeled post-punk and not punk, just because of the timing. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, I think it's also um, worth mentioning um, or talking about in the context of that first um, single coming out, the fact that it was one of the first releases on Rough Trade Records. I think Mm -hmm. it was like the 13th single. Um, And Rough Trade being such like um, uh, the perfect fit for this music to... Um, to I, you know the perfect place for the music to live, but also um, you can see how their music is also coming out of a context, the rough trade scene. Yes. Um, one and of what, my favorite. 
parts of working on the book was um, interviewing Jeff Travis from Rough Trade about the philosophies and ideas that were guiding him right. during that view. So Jeff Travis is a co-producer on the record, and um, along with Mayo Thompson, and and the the aesthetic choices of how they produced it are, mm-hmm. are perfect because yeah. it really does. You know, they recorded it in a proper studio, but it's it's rec- the it, the sound of it is very direct. It's very much in the room. It's very unadorned. It I just can sounds see how like, you would not like the sound because it is very ragtag. So if your ears aren't trained for that, it's you know. But I think they got it. I think yeah, yeah, I, I think yeah. Jeff. I, I think the the you know Jeff Tra- Tra- Travis and Mayo Thompson really understood what was yeah. going to make it sound like, like the way they should sound. Right. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. These were people who were saying we're ru- we're running a a label, a Marxist record label, right. and um, along with taking back the means of production, like we believe that like the demands of the marketplace um, are not relevant to the music that we are making and the marketplace is a false creation. Um, I highly recommend if anyone is interested in this um, record to go on YouTube and look up Rough Trade South Bank Show. It might even be Stiff Little Finger South Bank Show 1979 and you can find this mini documentary with all of this footage of the raincoats recording this single and um, being interviewed about the process. So let's uh, let's walk through this thing, shall we? Let's saunter through it because it really uh, begs. Yeah, every song is kind of worth chatting about. Yeah. Okay, so let, let's kick off with with Fairy Tale in the Supermarket, which is uh, definitely uh, potentially it definitely sounds like a sort of a manifesto. I agree. A clock, a clock, a clock, right? <laughs> <laughs> they use the technique a lot of um, through composing, which is sort of, you know, parts that don't really repeat, maybe parts that only really happen once. Um, they, they do that a lot. That's a technique they really get a lot of mileage out of. And, um, that it's, and this, this song really seems to have that. There's a million things that happen in it in, in three minutes or whatever. Let's talk about the intro first. Yeah, I mean, well, it's great. It's just like, you know... That dive-bombing bass. It just rolls into... the. the it, it's like a running start, and then just <laughs> jumps you, you in with the drum up. fill. You're yeah. like, if you're doing something else, it pulls your attention away from whatever it is you're doing yeah. and right squarely on what they're doing. Yeah, and it communicates that the way when they kick in, it, I, I love the sense of space that the record has, that you kind of get the sense that they're playing in this small space right on top of each other. Great, like, esprit de corps to this uh, recording. It just, just sounds like they're having a lot of fun making it. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I love what you said about space because I feel like that's one of the things about the record that uh, comes to mind first when I think about the sound of it is how it really you're just in the room with them yeah. in a really visceral way. One of the first lines on that song, um, it makes no difference night or day. No one teaches you how to live <laughs> is the lyric yeah. that I would put <laughs> Yeah, the that's, that's the one. Yeah, I, th- I think about it all the time. Um, and, we'll, you know, we'll, as we were talking about earlier, um, the idea of the raincoats embodying in the sound itself, not like without even beginning to talk about the lyrics, um, this this real ethic or philosophy, I feel like no one teaches you how to live, um, really encapsulates that. It feels to me like it's got the vibe of a jalopy belching smoke and squeaking all off kilter like. But not in any kind of bad way at all. It yeah, just, I think I think Paul Mollov's drumming is a big uh, catalyst yeah, of yeah. that. So she has a kind of like counterpoint style of drumming. She's not really kind of like just laying down the groove a lot of the time. No, no. You know, she's kind of like a, she's a painter. She, she's, she's kind like of commenting pa- on she's things. Painting splashes yeah. here and there. It's, and um, and she has a, a, you know I think it's her sense of rhythm when she kind of does fills. There's kind of a herky jerky sort of rhythm that she has that I, I it really I think um, it kind of makes everything sound in that jalopy sort of sense. Right. 
right. which is a, a really kind of welcoming sound somehow. It is. You know, it's um, the, the way they play together in their chemistry is like the kind of extra element that kind of puts it over right. the top. And I think it's so much, I think it's because they're so well rehearsed. You know, the, the way they put mm-hmm. these, the way they put these songs together, how well they knew them, the songs really breathe. Yeah, yeah, and absolutely. You, what you had said earlier, Joe, about no side to fall in being an appropriate opener, I, not just musically as a sort of like a shot out of the cannon, but you know the fact that is it is uh, a piece of music about listening to music and experiencing music. Yeah. What a great song for a band to open their debut record with that buzzing midsection before the acapella breakdown that half broken keyboard that Anna picked up at a flea market and brought home and and then Mm -hmm. recorded in a certain way to make it sound totally alien just sounds like uh like a group of elves running I agree. It's beautiful. I uh, I want to listen to it. Like just listening to you talk about it, I'm like, oh, I really, I want to go listen to it. Immediately, which I love, I don't I love the like clicky clacky kind of percussion thing going on through it. Yeah, yeah. They're kind of th- th- this one is a little bit of a uh, foreshadowing to Odie Shape. The, yep. the, the following records, they're kind of you know they they start to uh, experiment with palette and stuff on this one. Um, super totally. cool song. Um, Definitely one of my favorite on the record. Even though it's under two minutes, it's a perfect song. It's two minutes, but it's, like again, it feels like a million things happen in those right. two minutes. Um, uh, then then uh, track number three is Paul Olive's uh, Screed. Uh, her uh, see you wouldn't want to be you. Uh, <laughs> Adventures close to home. Uh, another song under two minutes. But Jesus, does it pack in a lot of stuff under two minutes? Totally. Uh, I mean that that is a, that song is so poetic. Um, when I started, um, I remember, yeah, when I started to really dig into the, the lyrics on that song, um, when I was writing my book, um, it was unbelievable to me. I'm so uh, <laughs> grateful that she was a part of the recording because I, um, you know, she she quit. She left the band immediately after. She was definitely narrating her current situation very directly well didn't Um, they hurry up to record this record before she left isn't that the idea yeah let's do this yeah yeah exactly so it's one of those things where i'm just so grateful that it that it happened when it did yeah right this this record could have easily not happened it's more like a document of a time than just as much a document of a time as it is a record i'm just glad i i know what you're saying jen i'm I'm so glad it got documented all the work they did to become the band that they became that it that it you know that they were able to document that and that we have this amazing record all these years later um adventures close to home you know the slits recorded it too and it's super interesting to hear them play it and then hear the raincoats take on it and that the, the, just like the difference in approach between the two bands um and the raincoats version is kind of almost like in a television sort of space you can see the, the influence of that there the way that the way the parts the way the bass and guitar fit together their version's kind of a lot more ornate and has a lot kind of a lot of uh goes in a lot of different tangents that the slits version doesn't really do as much it's very interesting to see the two different takes so then the next song on the record track number four is off-duty trip so this is about uh, an actual incident that occurred um uh, a, a a soldier raped somebody in the park not quite sure which park yeah it's um this is such an important song i think to the history of music in general because it is one of i think like when you when you think about like music that um of, for example, like the Riot Girl movement in the '90s, mm-hmm. to me, the proto Riot Girl in yeah, um, in really just just um, t- taking um, like a news story of the day and turning it into a song. I mean, that's 
of the folk tradition to like a, a newspaper song, um, but something that is so um, like uncompromisingly feminist um, at that time in, in this particular music scene was really rare. And um, also in the context of the record, uh, you know, you're talking about a sea of very, very striking impressionistic lyrics. I mean, cups of tea are a clock uh, has nothing to do with the kind of uh, direct message that off-duty trip is trying to convey. So the song really leaps off the record because there's not anything else that I believe tries to be quite as direct. Yeah, I think it's also important to mention like another Vicky was classically trained and she had studied by um, music in school, but she had also before she joined the raincoats been a part of a band called jam today, which was a part of the um, women's um, liberation movement like music scene. Um, at the time, um, and so she had previously been a part of a music scene that was writing much more. Um, explicitly feminist, um, direct um, songs about women's experiences and women's issues. Um, and then when she, you know, when she joined the Raincoats, she was excited to participate in a music scene that was one, not separatist, and two, that was kind of trying to, um, like, find a feminist way of creating music that wasn't necessarily um, so on the nose. Right. Um, mm -hmm where the way the songs were composed and um, produced and released was part of the message. Um, but at the same time, we have this song, Optity Trip, which kind of does both of those things at the same time. Musically, that one, it seem, that one seems like ahead of its time to be musically. It sounds like 90s indie rock. Um, so yeah, we're four songs in, and they've done a lot of different things at this point. Right? Yeah, a lot <laughs> in, of different in those things. first four yeah. songs, there's already a lot of information. Um, a lot of different stylistic kinds of things. Um, black and White is one of my favorite songs on the record, the next one. Uh, love love Black and White. Um, this has that great sense of space. It sounds like they're in that really tiny space. The, the playing together is so great on this one. I love the, the way it kicks in. There's sort of a false start intro. It sounds like they're kind of just like kind of playing another song and then <laughs> they just change their mind and start playing right, this. Right. Um, it has that great kind of loose feel to it. Um, mm. I it love the all the... Yeah, the, the saxophone <laughs> stuff is like, that's amazing. That's awesome, it's awesome, yeah. It's so, uh, it, I love stuff like that where you're like, what is this instrument that's, you know, it doesn't it's, it's doesn't sound like a saxophone really. It sounds like kind of like uh, like the clavioline. That's the thing that's like on Baby, You're a Rich Man. You know mm -hmm. that sound? That kind of like ribbony kind of sound that goes through that song. Yes. It sounds, it sounds kind of like that. Um, yeah, I love the sonics of this song really. And then oddly, with a song that's so suffused with such, uh, you know, idiosyncratically penned songs, uh, the most famous song on the record is a cover uh, of the Kinks' Lola, uh, a uh, you know seminal gender flip sort of a deal. Uh, sounds way more at home actually with the Raincoats than it did with the Kinks. It's a better song in the Raincoats' hands. It comes out not jokey. It came out kind of like a joke. The Kinks' yeah. version is sort of like a novelty song, and they and the Raincoats' version is not like that at all. Yeah, it, it's it's yeah, I feel like every record, on, every song on this record feels so important for its own uh, unique reason. But I think that Lola in particular, like I have so many friends who are queer, particularly friends who are lesbians, who have told me like I had never heard a song where a woman was singing about another woman before, um, uh, before I heard this, and it was so powerful to to hear that. And this this also was the first the first raincoat song that I heard, and I think probably the first raincoat song that a lot of people heard because it does have kind of more of um, uh, 
conventional structure to it. Yeah, it's a well, it's it's the first time on the record really that they've played kind of a verse chorus verse sort of song like this. Um, they did they did more stuff like this later in their career, kind of more conventional song structures. It's also kind of right the right in the midway point of the record. So mm-hmm. and it's a song, it's a melody that's familiar to you. So it's it's I think it's a sequence just right on there. It sits on there. It's just sort right. of a palate cleanser, but yet it has a lot more efficacy on the album than just that. They play it pretty faithfully to the original. Yeah. They play it like pretty much pretty similar arrangement, but the way it comes out with them playing and singing, it really does. It's it's a whole other different kind of song. It's it very homey. Very yeah. it has has sort of a Mexican jumping bean kind of vibe yeah. to it. Um, it's a lot of fun. It's just fun, right? It sounds like they're having a great time playing yeah. it. That's in my notes as well too. Just how how the, this how how joyous it is. Yeah, and it, it's cool because it's um, a song where Anna, Gina, and Vicky all sing. There's so many moments on the on this record where they all sing at the same time, and I'm like, just this is my favorite sound right. ever. Yeah. Right? Yeah. 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 It's really important to me, uh, and really like reaches a really really deep place inside of me. And then interestingly on the record, sort of when that breather happens, it goes right into the void, which, um, you know, I can understand, I guess, in retrospect, or even at the time, why uh, Kurt Cobain and Courtney Love would be drawn to this particular song. Um, But uh, I wouldn't say it's my favorite song on the record, but uh, it's definitely uh, a return to very existentially minded lyrics. You don't hear this kind of, you know, this topic being sung about in uh, certainly in a punk song very often it's crazy i love this song so much i like even just when you <laughs> when you said now we're going to talk about the void it's like i felt it in my whole body i just like this song really means a lot to me um the void and yeah it's one of my favorites on the album and i i think it's just like the raincoats um uh after this album came out anna created this little booklet called the raincoats booklet um, where she explained what some of the songs were about. And there's something that she wrote about this song in there that um, really always sticks with me. I actually might just um, read it because it's read in front it, of please. So the Raincoats booklet came out in 1980. It's this little zine with lyrics and drawings and explanations of the lyrics. And she wrote, when I wrote The Void, I was trying to express something I had felt and thought about for a long time. I see everyone individually, an isolated entity. We all try to assimilate with another person or persons or groups or communities, but in the end, we are ultimately alone. And it's so heavy and uh, yeah. you know, depressing, especially um, given the state of the world. But I, I think that sometimes you just feel completely alone. And even in the context of a record that is so about a collective sound and so about working together and destroying a sense of isolation, I think it is, you know, it adds to the complexity of the record that have a song. That's true. You know, that's very true. This song is also kind of like an emotional peak. It's very cathartic. This is the one, I mean, the song is called The Void. She's kind of screaming into the void, you know, like it's... uh, this is kind of one of the more emotional. It's definitely one of my favorites too on the record. Um, yeah. You know, when when that chorus kicks in, it's you know it's her, her vocal is really powerful on that. I think it also just speaks to to like you know there's so much going on on this record that I think it would be really easy to listen to it and not pr- really pick up on how brilliant the lyrics are. Like, yeah. mm-hmm. um, I'm sure that a lot of people listen to this record and they don't they don't think that much about the lyrics i'm obsessed with lyrics though and like um and and i usually shy away from that but with with them uh you know their lyrics are an intrinsic part of the uh, part of the story totally like they're simple but they're really powerful it's like they were writing songs about like 
it's like you know these these like essential truths of <laughs> of existence that just they seem so simple on the surface but as with anything that is really simple and classic you know that it's not as easy as it looks yeah, and like, this song you know, in particular has that really universal feel to it yeah like when i found out that anna had written a dissertation or like you know a thesis about bob dylan when she was in college <laughs> it all yeah. made so much sense to me i was like yeah. this makes so much sense that there's this person who is so poetic and has studied language this much but at the same time english is not her first language so right, like maybe there's right. that is is contributing also to how the lyrics are simple but so powerful so yeah just uh you know you talk about it being simple but i think a lot of it is actually uh st- strikes me as complex like if you look at a song like in love uh and uh you know it was written on a bus right so uh the lurching yeah, right. the, the lurching and the breaking of the bus contributes to that stop start uh disorienting drama mean like sort of queasiness uh that adds to the song i mean that's not something you're going to get from a regular song yeah, totally. I feel like um, it's such a it's such a great example of how I feel like often like the structures of the songs and like the ways that the tempos and the ways that like you were saying they lurch forward are really um, interpreting the lyrics um, yes, in a way yeah. that feels really powerful. Yeah, they have they have just such a unique set of priorities and, and th- you know things that are important to them. I think because they're not looking at it as like, I'm a, I'm a musician that plays the, this part. You know, they, they really have a sense of um, the whole and the big picture um, at all times in a way that's kind of uncommon, I think, for a lot of bands. Yes, they had a vision for sure. All right, Jen, tell us about your thoughts on uh, Life on the Line, uh, which features uh, uh, lyrics written by an early member of the band, Ross Crichton. Yeah, this was a song that was written by one of the um, earlier members of the band. And then they said, they told me that Mayo Thompson um, had um, changed the lyrics a little bit, though when I, I remember when I interviewed him, he didn't really have any recollection of that or claims to not. The what what's really interesting to me about this song, like I said, is like the the tempos. There's something um that Anna and Shirley told me when I interviewed them, um, about how they felt like rhythm was like your heartbeat and sometimes you have to run across the street to catch the bus so you run faster. Or sometimes you're stuck in traffic so it slows down. And something about that to me, um, it's always really stuck with me how the rhythms were um, replicating real life. Yeah, that's yeah. another dimension they have that really does add a lot to their to the uniqueness of this record. How they they really do that so seamlessly, and it's it's something that's like uh, that's something they really get a lot of um, a lot of payoff from. I think. Thanks. All right, oh. next one, you're a million. That's another one they play so great on this. The the tempo when they there's like a fast part of this that's like maybe at like one forty five or so. I think that's yeah. kind of when they're kind of most like at their most frenetic on this album. That's another kind of peak of the record to me is that that section in this song. It's just yeah, the best and this, racket. And this is all just a straight shot to the end. It's all the songs are so good on the on the back half here. Yeah, that song in particular, you're a million. Um, I felt like I learned so much when Anna and I talked about that song um, when I was doing research for my book. Um, like I, um, one of the most fascinating things that I learned about them as people because one of my priorities when I was writing the book is I wanted to find out about their lives and like see how details from their lives um, 
were manifesting in the songs and learning about how Anna moving from Portugal to London and Palmolive moving from Spain to London. They both grew up in these countries under these like fascist dictatorships where they lived um, these like, re you know, repressed lives in um, going, coming to London and experiencing the freedom of punk was like a very visceral experience and it like really meant something um she has a line where she says my feelings were killed by laws the walls that surrounded my city um and when That's you think about line, yeah that, you think about that means in the context of her biography and and um the experience of being a woman coming to london being like newly free and trying to understand what that even meant and and express that in music um Whew, it's a lot to unpack. Yeah, um, that, is, that, that is quite a lot, and it, it's uh, it's it's unbelievable that uh, the amount of emotional mileage that it covers just in that in in the one song because it doesn't really even uh, that theme doesn't really uh, recur all the way through the record. It's just kind of ensconced within that within that song. Yeah, it is truly incredible the kind of like um uh, spectrum of emotion that this album covers. Um, is really really remarkable to me the song in love i you know there it has so many twists and turns to it and the, the playing it this one in particular really has the where the, you know they've where they've had that telepathy going on where they're doing tempo shifts and like crescendos and it builds to things and it, it must just be so fun to have command of the material like that and to, to, to it, that must have been so much fun to play that way um yeah to really yeah, yeah. to me communicate with your bandmates in that way that one it, it really shines in that song i think hard agree <laughs> it's <laughs> like i love this song so much that it um even though i have written about it in a book i find it sometimes hard to articulate because this song means so much to me and i could feel it so so intensely makes me feel that that song just like reaches so far into me and it like listening to it you feel the kind of like visceral full body like nerves and can't eat can't sleep thing of like being in love <laughs> it's crazy and then uh the, the last one is no looking which is again one of the best songs on the record you could say it of course about any of them this is based off a poem by jacques prévert and um, it's an incredible closer and very intense. This song also, like you were saying, it's like a journey and there's so many different sections to it. Um, my, I love the, be yeah, the, the beginning of it feels totally like film noir to me or something, mm -hmm. but the mm -hmm. end of it, by the end, they're all screaming, shouting together. And it's just to me like the perfect end of the album. Um, there's something to me about their music that does feel like unresolved in a way that means a lot but um the way that the record ends to me makes total sense yeah this one i love her the the drumming on this one is some of my favorite drumming on it i mean it's, it sounds like someone's throwing drums down a flight of stairs or something but it's like the, right, yeah. in the best way you know it's yes. uh, she's kind of out of the uh, it, it, like, this is another one where she's kind of like commenting on things where she's kind of adding counterpoint and you know it's it's such a unique way to play drums yeah, I, I also just, yeah, totally, I completely agree. Um, something um, about this song and how, like, I, I really love thematically how it's talking about this kind of, like, confused space between two people, like, um, this tension between two people. Like, Gina's, like, singing about this relationship, but there's no, like, answer or anything. Right. Um, and that's really cool and powerful to me. Um, the whole record, I mean, it's... Uh... You know, I definitely, we, we rate on a system of five stars. I would definitely give it five. 
Um, it would be crazy to give it anything yeah, else. This is an it's easy, a five-star record. This is an easy five stars. This is probably the most we've gone in-depth on a single record on the show. I think show. so, and it's, yeah. It's really, really uh, this is, it's so much fun to talk about. Um, they really are a band that makes you think and uh, makes me think of like what, what I value in music and yeah. and um, how, like why do I like this? Like what, what is it about it that's appealing to me? They're really, it's a lot of food for thought with this band. Unfortunately, now it knows I love it so much so it will never go out on a second date with me. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you know, what, you know, I told you about this, Jen. I mean, you're, we both read your book. We both loved your book. And at the end, uh, the, the last couple pages, you tie it into your own uh, journey. And, you know, I'm, I'm curious. I mean, you've, you wrote this how many years? This is like uh, three or four years ago you wrote this? It came out in 2017. Right. So, okay, so almost five, five, years. five years ago, which is crazy. So the, the connection with you and the band uh, and or you and this record, how has it changed, trans transmogrified, grown over the last five years? Um, yeah, I feel like my relationship to the music has only intensified over the years and the process of writing it too, you know, I, I felt so grateful for uh, just to be able to spend so much time um, listening to this music and talking to them and getting to know them and, and processing all of this definitely like was transformational in a way that um, I feel so lucky for. Um, I think it would be impossible to write a book about the raincoats and not come out of it like um, changed, in, you know, yeah, like yeah. To, to kind of believe in yourself a little bit more, honestly. Um, and uh, of course, I started a band while I was working on the book. Like, you, nice. I don't know if it would be possible for anyone to spend so much time um, thinking about and living with this music and this band and not feel like motivated to express yourself on, you know, on your own. Something about the Raincoats music, particularly their first album, I think it has been really cool to me to hear people who were not familiar with their music tell me that they read the book and um, felt energized by their story uh, and young people. Um, so I hope that the Raincoats music continues to reach artists and like young, you know particular people who are like at the beginning of their journey and not necessarily like young in age just anyone who is at the beginning of like starting over or a new a new creative journey or something um i think right. there's like so much wisdom and to be gained from their music and it's also just really fun to listen to yeah it is yeah well, we look forward to reading anything else that you come out with. And frankly, uh, you should be writing big, fat books. <laughs> um, oh, thank you. <laughs> you really should. You're, you're a very involving writer. And, uh, you know, inserting yourself into the, uh, into the middle of it emotionally is only going to um, help us readers understand your journey. So th thanks for sharing it with us. Um, yeah, thank you. And um, the, the raincoat's journey, of course, uh, keeps going. So we're going to drop uh, Jen off at this bus stop and continue uh, our journey into 1980. Please tell Anna and Gina uh, that we did this and that we were very much in love with everything they've done. Um, and before you go, is there anything that you'd like to mention that you're promoting or that you'd like to anybody to check out? Oh, I guess all I would say is the Raincoats are still an active band. They um, obviously the pandemic has paused touring, but I, the last time I saw them play was in November of 2019. Um, they continue to release. Gina released a solo single last year. They're both active visual artists. So Fe if feminist song, right? Yeah, it's called Feminist Song, and yeah. it was released by Third Man Records. Um, 
yeah, so I, if you're interested in the brain codes, I definitely recommend checking out all that they are up to in 2022. Excellent. Yeah, thank you so much, Jen. And of course, you can go on um, pitchfork.com and check out all the most current music news uh, as disseminated by the great Jen Pelly. Thanks for joining oh, us, Jen. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. And so with Jen Pelly in her rear view, also so are the 1970s. Uh, in 1980, John Lydon from the Sex Pistols told Trouser Press, the Pistols finished rock and roll. That was the last rock and roll band. It's all over now. Rock and roll is shit. It's dismal. Granddad danced to it. I'm not interested in it. I think music has reached an all-time low, except the raincoats. <laughs> He seems nice. He does seem nice, at least to Anna and Gina <laughs> et al. Okay, so in 1980, uh, the Raincoats put together an album called Oddy Shape. Now let's first talk about the genesis of Oddy Shape and also mention the fact that this is one of those records where if you are a fan of music, you are just, every single cell in your body is gonna, um, is gonna open up like a mouth and scream. <laughs> because this has so much inside of it, doesn't it, Joey? Uh, well, this is one of the more unique records um, where I, if you try to think of something that's similar to it, it's I really I'm drawing a complete blank. This is one of the most unique records um, I think probably ever made. It's their their approach to making it. Well, I guess the process of how it was made, I guess, is part of the story of it. Exactly. So, so, so at this, Palmolive had left. left right, right, she left the band shortly after um, the debut was completed. And, yeah, they, and they hired Richard Dudansky, who later was uh, the drummer for Public Image. Right. Well, there was a period in between where they had a short-lived member named Ingrid Weiss who played on the record. She's on a couple teenager. of songs. She was a teenager. Yeah, she's on a couple of the songs. But um, yeah, as you were saying, um, they, a lot of the, the, they wrote kind of without drums in mind, or they wrote kind well, of... Well, so, so Ingrid Weiss actually left during the start of the recording of Body She's on two songs, I believe. Okay, so this is uh, the one of the reasons why Adi Shape is so wonky sounding in a good way is that it kind of works backwards uh, on how a normal record uh, is recorded. So they kind of painted in drums afterwards, right? So they had the bedrock of the songs, but no no drummers. And then uh, they hired you know a few different people, Richard Dudansky, who later was with uh, Public Image, uh, Charles Hayward from This Heat, Robert Wyatt, of all people, uh, from Soft Machine. Actually, it's not uh, that crazy a fit, um, as well as uh, Ingrid Weiss. Right. So this has a lot less of a we're a four piece band playing the song as it goes, you know, as we rehearsed it sort of thing. This is kind of a more uh, it's, it's done through uh, there, there's a much wider palette and their approach to drums is sometimes unconventional. They're you know, unconventional. Sorry. They're, you know, they're looking at uh, different ways of getting drums down on on in the tracks. And there's they kind of use a lot of different types of approaches. They had found a lot of like kind of junk store percussion instruments as they were touring right, right. kind of like um, a, a few of them shrewdy box i think that's how you pronounce yep. it balafone 
the Shania and the Kalimba. Yes, they had found these kind of like you know thrift store kind of like you know uh, world music folk kind of instruments in New York in, a, in secondhand yeah, shops, and, and they brought it back to London. And that stuff is a big part of the sound of the record. They use it very creatively throughout, um, and it gives them a you know the. the they, they also swap their instruments to right. keep things fresh. Um, the debut album has a has a pretty consistent palette. It's you know it's either two guitars, bass, drums, or violin guitar bass drum sometimes vicky plays guitar um but this record has a a, a widely varying palette and um it, it, the their, their style of play is not so they, they're still doing the through composed sort of thing where they, they, they they'll have a lot of parts that don't repeat and the songs are kind of complicated have the, the arrangements are complicated but it doesn't really have that kind of jalopy like uh loose loosey-goosey falling apart sort of quality this record's kind of more put together but it has this uh odd spectral quality to it which probably accounts for the the lack initially of a of a drummer yeah it's still like kind of ramshackle in a way there's still there's sort of still sort of a ramshackle quality to it just not really in precisely the same way i think subtracting like you know palmolive had such a specific kind of herky-jerky rhythm that subtracting her from the picture really kind of changes the way I think everybody else plays together. Right, right. Um, so there's no center. So everyone's flying around in the periphery, but in a in an incredibly in, interesting way musically. Yeah, it's a it's a, also a less raucous kind of affair. Mm -hmm. There's things that are kind of more pretty. Um, you know, it, it's it's just endlessly interesting um, kind of like deconstruction of what a song is. And honestly, describing it is a little bit like trying to hold air. Yeah, it's, but it we'll, is. we'll do our best. But it's, it's music with no rules whatsoever. Right. Um, you know, um, and within that, despite having no rules, it has its own kind of internal consistency. Right. It says in my notes here, um, why does it feel like the drunken, slightly queasy pitchings of a haphazardly built sea vessel, but yet it takes its waves with aplomb and never capsizes? Why am I so ornate in my note-taking? <laughs> uh, but that's uh, how it hit me. Um, so every song is really interesting. The songs are much longer, too. Uh, yeah. They're way more exploratory and definitely do not hew to the verse-chorus format. Right. A lot of atmosphere in a lot of these um, let's start with the opener. So, you know, th this is one of those things, shouting out loud, the opener, nothing ever seems to repeat. It, it all, it's all kind of through composed. It's kind of like, a the, the bass line is very, it's this kind of built around this melodic bass line. You know, Gina's bass playing. By the way, this is my favorite song on the record. I love yeah. It. Her, she's really a, uh, also, you know, they all have such a unique approach to playing their instruments, but Gina's a very melodic bass player. And a lot of times it's kind of playing kind of, kind of counterpoint melody or, is you know kind of off doing a little melodic run it, it, a lot of these songs are kind of built around um gina's or not built around but you know the that's a lot of the weight of the song is carried by gina's right. melodic bass lines um you know uh, this is the one where ingrid weiss plays drums it's kind of a nervous kind of like <laughs> rhythm on, on like toms and hats another sort of deconstructed sort of drum beat um you know tempos are fluid they come and go mm -hmm. It's, they're doing some they of the do same. They do come and go. Yeah, they're doing Much some of the more, more so than the first record. And the first record, it was doing that a lot. Yeah, yeah, but they, you know, but it's a very like, um, it's very effective the way what yeah. they what they do with tempos. They really give the songs really a lot of momentum and. You know, there, there's a kind of like a Kale, John Cale style violin drone. One of the, just a million things in it and so many ideas. It's such an interesting piece of music. Great I think, opener. I think really it's, uh, you know, just, just as a whole, because I, I keep 
<laughs> sort of going back out to the hole when talking yeah. about this record. Yeah. It's very hard for me to talk about individual songs um, on this one specifically. But th- it, this kind of struck me as being like a post-punk bitch's brew. So it's got the same sense of dark mystery to it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's infused with that same promise of completely boundless creativity. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there are other songs that are based around, like the, you know, the second song, or uh, the song, um, I'm sorry, the song Family Treat. Um, it's kind of built, that one's built around like a piano kind of chord changes on that. Um, so that's kind of a new thing in the palette for them, a whole different feel for them. Again, more with radical tempo changes in that one. Um, you know, um, it's, it's somehow something very pretty and kind of vulnerable about it. Um, the, the, yeah, this it's you. They really, you really got to give this record a spin. It's, it's yeah, really, there's really nothing that we're going to be able but to it, say. But it would be really also helpful to, con- to get, listen to us continue stumbling over ourselves <laughs> trying to define it. But it's very funny to me because that is really what this record is. I mean, there's there's not a, there's no reference to say. No, I mean, it, you made no. the, the bitches brew reference, and in spirit there is some of that. But, but it doesn't really sound anything. No, it like doesn't. It. It's more of a kind of like you know the it has a kind of searching kind of quality to it in the way that bitches brew does. But to, to try to describe what it sounds like is is it, I agree. It's, it's very, totally it's very elusive. pointless. Yeah, it really <laughs> is. There's not uh, other than just letting it wash over you. Uh, describing it does not do it justice at all. Um, to me, this is a five-star record, mainly for the sheer boldness of it, because it really exists just to be admired, celebrated, and, and venerated. An opinion, uh, even though ours is always unfailingly correct, is simply null and void here. Yeah. Th- this one, um, you know, there, there's, a, there's kind of an inherent drama to it. Um, it it's like, a, it's, you know, it's the, they're, they're playing, I think, is at another level on this record. I think they've been playing, you know, they've, they've, they've toured a bunch. They're more seasoned musicians. And um, I think that comes across on this record. Um, really love Gina's bass playing. I, I feel like she's really yeah, kind of, great. Uh, you know, the uh, they, they have they have more experience playing together, and they still have the magic even without Paul Molliff in the band. Even even you know with different drummers coming and going and using different techniques of recording, it still feels like they, the raincoat. They still it have doesn't... that that magical telepathy between them, right? As, as and they, don't as forget that you know the group started with just Anna and Gina, right? And so you know, even though there's other people in it. And the sound is very, very different. It still definitely feels of a piece with their, with their debut. You give it five stars. Oh yeah, five stars for me on yeah, this one. Yeah. I really like th- this record. Uh, you know, the debut I was familiar with um, before the we did this podcast. I've had that you know kind of on many playlists over the years. Me too, um, and not this for not me. this not Audi Shape so much. And um, I you know I had read about it and I knew kind of what it was. If you know, if you value um, a spirit of adventure in music, if you value you know uh, uniqueness, and you know, um, th- then it's probably going to be your sort of thing. Uh, then in 1982, uh, a really uh, great but uh, confounding single, uh, a burbling and totally fantastic Sly and the Family Stone cover of "Running Away" from "There's a Riot Going On." It's surprisingly faithful cover. Very faithful it. and really good, but still a cover. Back, Char- charming. Back couldn't with, be more charming. Backed with one of their best songs on the B side. It is fucking hysterical that a cover went on the A side and one of their all-time best songs, if not possibly their all-time best, is relegated to the flip. But it's another beautifully contrarian move from a very unique band. No One's Little Girl 
is the very first song that Gina ever wrote in 1977, which to me is completely nuts. The very first song I ever heard by this band was this song, and I could not believe how good it was. It, to me, still, it's their anthem. Well, and, and it's, it's also very different from anything they've done to this point. So this is kind of a, is this, a, are we in a new, same phase? Same phase. No, no new phase. No, the only phase <laughs> But it phase is a little is... bit of a different phase, it may, even though if it's not an official discography new phase. Um, th- this is a straightforward kind of pop song. This is this is you know it's in regular old four four time. It's a breezy pop song. But then there's pop no song. pop album that follows. There, it. There's a great like melodic bass line. It's just this easy breezy kind of like you know. Um, so can you have a phase for a single? <laughs> <laughs> I think this does hint at the moving album a little bit though. I mean, there's not really other songs that are but that are exactly like this on the next record. But this this direction that they go in of a kind of more conventional pop song or more conventional song forms mm-hmm. starts here, and then this they, is that a five do, star release for me. Oh, that's I a great single. Yeah, single. no, it's amazing. It's so good. Both, both uh, the, co- the, the family affair cover is great too. It's really fun. I just can't get enough the of the um, not family affair the. Um, Running away, sorry. Running, running away. away. Yeah. Uh, then in '82, they uh, a live performance is uh, is recorded that comes out as the kitchen tapes in '95 and '98 on CD. It comes from a, a recording of a December 1982 performance in New York at a venue called the Kitchen, um, not their actual kitchen. Right, right. Although, Although this is the kind of band that this you, is. that would put out an album from their actual, especially kitchen. if there were mushrooms falling <laughs> out of the walls. All right. So in 1983, so that performance, the kitchen. Yeah. Tapes performance is kind of of this era. It's a lot of the songs that ended up being on this this next album. Moving. On the next album, so moving wasn't out yet. So there, there a lot of the songs they're doing um, had not been released quite yet. Yeah, um, another contrarian move by a beautiful band. 1983's 12 inch of Animal Rhapsody, um, notwithstanding the already released No One's Little Girl. This is basically their least essential release. It's not. I'm not a huge fan of the title track. Honey, Mad Woman is uh, rock solid. That's about it. But this is all, all these songs are going to be reviewed on Moving. Right. So it doesn't really count. Okay. Uh, it's really just a stopgap teaser for Moving. Moving comes out in 1983. And they're a different kind of band at this point, but yes. still a fascinating kind of band. Right. It's kind, I, would, I would characterize it as sort of a noir pop album with a reggae undershuffle. Um, that's kind of how I would define They're it. More, Most, it's a more conventional sort of sound. Um, yeah, the the way the band plays. The the uh, Richard Dudansky um, plays drums in a lot of this. We mentioned him earlier. He played in PIL. Um, it sounds like they're very influenced by what's going on in the New York City scene. There's kind of a lot of right, uh, the no dub, wave. some African music, and no wave. Here's a um, here's a crucial quote. Vicky Aspinall said uh, in the liner notes to the album. Trying to contain influences as diverse as chic, African music, Abdullah Ibrahim, funk, Cajun music, and the ever-present reggae, along with the continuum of guitar-based post-punk, was a difficult act to pull off and in the end pulled us apart. Yeah, but you can see a lot of that's kind of like downtown New York music yeah, uh, yeah, at the time. Yeah. You know, um, all that's, and you know, the early era of hip-hop, too. It is kind of a return to the, uh, the tunefulness of the debut um, with the expansive, broadened palette of Adi Shape. It's kind of a meeting in the middle, I think. Yeah, you know, it's also, this, this record was really, uh, the, 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 these records all went out of print and then got reissued in the, I guess, 90s 
after Kurt Cobain started championing right. them. The original um, 1983 album, The Running Order, that it, it's hard to find actually. Um, it's an, it's not on the when it was reissued in the 90s, they took like three or four songs off, and they took off some of the key songs on the record, and they're still not up on the streaming services. Hmm. So, um, like, you know, Dreaming of the Past is not on it. Honey, oh, Mad okay. Woman. Yeah, you know, some of the songs yeah, that to I, me, I have the, those the are kind of version. mainstay versions of, yeah. the, of the, you know, those so are things let, that really, those are things that should really be on the album to really appreciate absolutely, it. Absolutely. So I if, mean, look, first of all, there's a, probably the least essential song in my mind is Overheard. Uh, everything else, I think, is is from really good to great. So it kicks off with uh, Ooh, Ooh, La, La, La. Okay, definitely more stabilized territory. Less kind of, this merging. is more dance floor kind of ready right, kind of right. song. Um, has the kind of reggae feel to it. And it's awesome. It's just more straightforward reggae-fied, but it's it's really, really good. Yeah, so their priorities have changed a little bit, and they're kind of doing, they're a little bit different style-wise, but they still have um, a great sense of taste. So everything they're doing is sort of tasteful and has this, has the, has this sort of good spirit to it. Honey Mad Woman, that's really one of my favorites. That's, on the, that's the first ki- just killer. Yeah, so that's left off the, the reissue. So if, it, if, if you play it on me. streaming, it's not on there, um, which that really does the record a disservice. That song sounds like Graceland three years before Graceland. Yeah, it's, it's dominated by like African style guitar. I wonder if they had heard um, uh, Juju Music, the King Sonny Ade album. That was the kind uh-huh. of a sensation the year before. It's that kind of style of guitar. <laughs> Um, but it's a super awesome song. Um, you know, they're, they're kind of singing with like big soaring harmonies and the music underneath it's very like, kind of like this naughty kind of rhythm. It's, it's very, a, it's very accomplished, amazing. very yeah, accomplished sounding. Yeah, it's really, really good. Um, the, the next one I like just as much, if not more, Rainstorm is amazing. So it's kind of, most of it is a sort of ambient, like uh, loose jazzy thing that starts to pick up steam and whip itself into a frenzy. Yeah, it does the tempo change thing to great effect. Um, yeah, yeah. And then it uh, attempts and succeeds a smooth landing at the end. It, it is wonderful. Rainstorm's great. Cool song. The next one after that is there is kind of their take on hip-hop, Dance of Hopping Mad. Uh, it's pretty fucking cool and very trippy to boot. Like this was remin- of reminiscent of like ESG or something to exactly, me. Exactly, yeah. Um, really super fun. Uh, it really evokes that period of New York City to me, that, that sort of early hip-hop culture. They they rap a little bit on it. It's, it seems they like do, it's a, and it's cool. It's, it's an homage to a hip-hop, it seems like to me. It's it's, it's, it's a sort of a it feels nod like they're, to... they're rapture, basically. Yeah, yeah. Really, uh, really cool song. Balloon is amazing. That's sort of a... a Frenetic Middle Eastern gallop. That one I but, love. That's yeah, that one one's kind of like it's. It has like the. It's like it's like disco by complete weirdos. You know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> really. Same uh, with uh, really the, idiosyncratic take same on with disco. Animal Rhapsody. Yeah. Sort of like if the Feelies nervous energy. Yeah, before right. The it's disco it's song. their own very idiosyncratic way of playing, but with with the disco kind of backdrop. Yeah. This record is maybe uh, one of the more fun records. Um, it, th- this one is kind of more easy, kind of less challenging listen. I don't think it's as good as the other two records. But I give it four and a half stars. I gave, this, I gave this one four, but you know what? I, I, I could easily, I, I was going to either give it a four or four and a half. I could give it a five. I'm, I'm yeah. tempted to give this one a five too, but I, I'll give it four and a half. It's very, it's very creative um, and um, very, very listenable. Um, Yes. It's awesome. I no, mean, to have, to have a streak like this and then to break up, I mean, it's the Seinfeld thing of going out on top. Yeah, and Plus, they did they did three records that are so totally different. I mean, right. they, they all three are really, um, you know, the, the first two are kind of, they have a concept to them. Like, they, like, this is a way that we're playing 
The third one is very eclectic. They're doing a lot of different kinds of things in the third record. So then for 11 years, what happens is they kind of disperse. So they were tired of touring all the time and uh, pulling in all kinds of different musical directions. Um, and they started on other projects uh, very shortly after the release of Moving. Uh, Gina Birch uh, joined the later lineup of the Red Crayola, uh, which, of course, was headed by Mayo Thompson, who produced their debut. Um, Gina and Vicky Aspinall also formed a more pop-based band called Dorothy, while De Silva worked with a choreographer uh, named uh, Gabby Aegis on a series of dance projects and composed for a British television film, eventually just getting a job at an antique shop a few blocks away from Rough Trade. Eventually, that's where uh, a starstruck and awestruck Kurt Cobain and Courtney Love found her, uh, which brings us to phase two, a comeback, mm. 1994 to the present. So the Kurt Cobain thing really kind of was a, like a pivotal moment in their history, it I guess. It was huge. Yeah, so... Um, yeah, the I, debut is like number 16 or 20 on his all-time greatest yeah. albums list. Um, you know, Jen earlier kind of touched on that, that this record, that the Raincoats in general were um, a huge influence on the Olympia scene um, and, um, and, and, you know, and, and Riot Girl, And um, certainly that, you know, I think uh, Toby Vale, who turned Kurt onto mm -hmm. the Raincoats. And um, he's, you know, a, a, a very genuine fan when sought out Anna in the, in the, uh, thrift store she was working at and you know and they, they were actually going to tour with Nirvana they were supposed to right, open right. for Nirvana so what happened was on April 6th 1994 the raincoats played on uh, legendary station WFMU in support of the reissues uh, the raincoats were meant to do a seven date tour of the UK with Nirvana the week following and Kurt died on April 5th um, but the interest in them uh, remained, despite that unfortunate event. Right, um, right, and, and they're still together. And uh, they're kind of back um, in the game. So they did, when was the Peel session? That was right around That then, was right? 1994. So okay, that was called year. Extended Play EP. Um, it was a, a, a Peel session, uh, which was uh, released on Blast First. And uh, also at that time, The Void was covered by Hole. And I'm sure... Uh, the Cobain household was abuzz with talk of the raincoats mm. in between syringe fillings. Um, so, the um, best thing on this is the song We Smile, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, also a little trivia note. Steve Shelley of Sonic Youth plays drums on that oh, Peel sweet. session. Yeah. So there's four tunes. Uh, no One's Little Girl is a song we already know. Sh Shouting Out Loud is a song we already know. So you're only getting two new songs, Don't Be Mean and We Smile. We, sw we Smile is the one going on the playlist. To me, this is a welcome back more than a they're back yeah and the two cover you know the two uh remake you know the two live versions essentially the peel session versions of the two older songs are, are pretty fun um yeah. it's it's good I to hear it them three back. stars i gave it the same three uh 1995 the next year uh there was a release of the seven inch of don't be mean uh it was the least good song on the on the peel sessions and um the single itself it's a good, uh, a good enough release. Uh, I give it three stars. It didn't blow me away, but it's just good that they're back at this point. Yes, yeah, same here. And then that next year in 96, uh, their uh, last LP to date, Looking in the Shadows. Yeah, so this one I thought about a lot. This one I had the hardest time sort of rating and kind of evaluating like how it made me feel. It was produced by kind of a fancy pants 
um, English producer, a guy named Ed Bueller, who also plays drums on it. He'd made a bunch of kind of Britpop albums. Um, and it's, um, it's kind of a slick sort of sound. It sounds kind of, uh, kind of mainstream sounding production. Um, you know, it's, it's, uh, there are definitely good songs on it. They're there, not, the they're songwriting st- for 11 years off, the, uh, at least from the band, there's, re- there's still really good songs. There's really there. nothing on it that's bad right. per se, but I would have preferred to have heard a kind of more avant-garde kind of production or sure. at least a more kind of like not so slick production. Right, right. I don't really love the production of it, but I think there are a good number of songs that still shine. The story through. goes, by the way, by the way, that, uh, Gina and Anna had to relearn their instruments prior to recording. Right. Right. Which is a wonderful tale, even if it is not true. Uh, the songs that'll be cherry picked from this record, uh, at least uh, if I have a say in it, which I believe I still do, is Forgotten Words, Pretty, Baby Dog, You Ask Why, 57 Ways to End It All, and Love a Loser. Those are my favorites. Yeah. So some of the, so Forgotten Words, that kind of captures the raincoat spirit. Um, but that's one where I, the sound is just sort of like '90s college rock. Um, I, you know, I, I what I love so much about them, about their about their best work, is their amazing arrangements. And I feel like they get, that's getting a little bit diluted. Here, here's here. a, here's this what is I more think, of an exercise in songwriting. Here's what I think would have happened. I think if they had not just stayed together but continued recording consistently, I think that we would have picked up where Moving left off and this yeah. was just sort of a getting them back in I the I would game. have loved to have heard them do a record with like Jim O'Rourke or something or just yeah, yeah. some sort of naturalist kind of producer. You know, nothing right. against Ed Bueller. Uh, you know, um, it's 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 a cool, it's still a good record. Yeah. Um, it, the song Pretty, that's another one where it, it just has kind of like big like alternative nation kind of, kind of drums on Look, it's, it. Here's the thing. It's a good record. I, I think. I give it three I, stars. It, I gave it three and a half. So I like okay. it better than you. You liked it better than me. Um, but it's more of an exercise in songwriting yeah, than, yeah. than of them like playing so much as a they band. They still have their finger on that, though. They're able to express... They still have... The, they still really cool Yeah, stuff. they're still... You know, they're skilled songwriters and they're they interesting are. people. And lyricists, too. Yeah, they're, never, and they're good lyricists. I don't lyricists. listen to lyricists that much. You know, the, the, um, their, their personality is is um, all over it. It's, it, yeah, it yeah. it's not a record without its charms. Right. I, I, I kind of... Um, I would like to hear more from them. I'm, I'm oh, sure, kind of yeah. bummed because I feel like they get back in the swing of things and they can recapture yeah i mean even this now was almost 30 years ago yeah yep Um, so i give that one three stars i gave i gave it i gave it three and a half one more release from them that uh 10 years later in 2006 there was a uh, tribute cd to the monks uh, called silver monk time and they did a cover of monk chant yeah that shit's going down in our playlist that's really fun awesome what do you give that i gave i gave it four four yeah, it's probably the most like raincoatsy sounding thing that they've done yeah. since their uh, comeback. Yeah, um, it's very spirited, and uh, the, you know the I, the the original is great too. The original Monks version is is um, pretty. Oh, the really, Monks are amazing. Yeah, it's, they're, they're another completely bad and they're ki- crazy kin- kindred band. spirits. Um, to- totally, yeah. totally. Um, um, I would like to see sort of a, a wife swap. Uh, thing with the bands so the the raincoats shave the tops of their heads <laughs> and then the monks uh, go live in uh, squatting facilities <laughs> they live in like a monastery it's kind of like it's kind of squatting already <laughs> um, all right well um, as far as the uh, the overview here the arc of the band is really just it looks sort of like an Arizona butte so we're cresting for three albums, we're kind of at perfection. Then it just slopes down into a lower level, to uh, you know a three-star level. So we're at five-star level, then we're at three-star level. It's as simple as that. There's not tons of 
um, different phases. This band has its own thing going on. Yeah. And they were smart. The they arc, had, the arc is more within the first period because the, right. the, between the first three records, they're you know they they are uh, always doing something. All all three of them are very different. You know how you know these are really smart women. They they intentionally only made three albums because they don't want any of their records to fall off our top three lists. <laughs> okay, so our top three albums. Uh, my third favorite record is Moving. My second is Oddy Shape. My number one is The Raincoats. Uh, and their worst album, only because they only made four records, is Looking in the Shadows. They don't have any bad records. Yeah, mine's exactly the same. I have them, and I, I, you know, it's almost like um, that's like the the only there's no other way. The to only argument it. you could maybe make is I could see somebody preferring Oddy Shape first. to uh, over over the, right, over the right. debut. But um, yeah, it's pretty. And and they're uh, you know they only have four records. They never made a bad one. So so far they have the best worst record. Right. They <laughs> the do. artists they have we've the covered. Best worst record they're probably never. Ever. They'll probably never lose that honor. Right. <laughs> probably That's never. True. Never lose that. Uh, That's true. Uh, distinction. Yeah. Yeah. Especially because coming up, we're doing yes. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so anyway, thank you so much for taking this journey with us. Thank you so much to Jen Pelly for spending that amazing time with us talking about the debut. Um, definitely follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Come on our Facebook group and duke it out with us uh, and follow us uh, by all means. That's how we subsist because uh, right now we're just living on air just like the raincoats. Yes, we want to hear from you. So um, we will be making announcements about our, our Facebook discussion group. And uh, we have tons of incredible episodes and guests coming up. Also, keep your eyes peeled for the introduction of the Discography Patreon content. It's in the series. works. We're cutting some of those up. There's other shows that are going to be coming down the pike. So if you're a super fan, we got we got stuff for you're you. You're going to want to hang in there. We have shows like Rock Cousteau and Queasy Listening. We'll catch you next time on Discography. Discography. Bye bye.